Uh, Father, as your children of the day, help us now to be shaped by your word. We ask that not, we would just not be hearers of it, but doers of it for your glory. Amen. Well, sometimes drastic situations call for drastic measures. If you've ever seen the movie 127 Hours, you'll appreciate that. Um, 127 Hours tells the true story of a mountain climber whose arm became trapped under a rock while climbing in Utah. As the hours tick by, as the days tick by, after countless attempts to free himself, Aaron Ralston eventually realised that he was going to die there unless he freed himself by cutting off his own arm. And after five days, that's finally what he did, using a blunt penknife. Evidently, when the movie first came out, people were actually fainting in the cinemas. So overwhelming was this whole scenario. Sometimes a drastic situation calls for drastic action. This morning in 1 Corinthians, we have reached that level of a situation. A problem so serious is happening that it's going to need some drastic action to try and fix it. And within Paul's advice about this particular problem on how to fix it, there's some good things to see about who we are and why we take sin seriously. Let's firstly, though, see what this extreme problem is. Verse 1 told us. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that not even pagans tolerate. A man has his father's wife. The new NIV is more blatant. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. This is a big shift in topic. If you've been here, you'd realise that. Up until now, the whole letter has been about the problem of divisiveness. For four whole chapters, the Apostle Paul has been hammering away at that particular problem from a whole range of different reasons. Here in chapter 5, there's a shift. A problem on view now is an especially serious case of immorality. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, you would assume that this is his stepmother and not his biological mother, Otherwise, Paul would have used the word mother instead of father's wife. But it's not impossible that it's actually his biological mother and Paul is just so appalled by that that he can't even bring himself to write it straight out. Whatever the exact situation that's going on here, it's a level of immorality that Paul says even the non-Christian world would balk at. Plus, the whole thing is compounded by arrogance. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, verse 2, and you are proud? This is now so warped, it almost begs belief. In what possible universe could the Corinthian church be proud about this? I have a few theories, which I will not bore you with. Uh, they involve reading between the lines of scripture. We can chat over morning too if you really want to. The main thing to notice is that this is an appalling situation which even the non-Christian world would be sickened by. It's going to need a drastic solution. Verse 2, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who is doing this? 
Paul's drastic solution to the drastic problem is to remove the man from their fellowship. Then in verse 4, he describes it as handing the man over to Satan when they are next assembled. That sounds a little weird. But in the New Testament, the world outside of God's church is often depicted as the realm of Satan. So to be expelled from Christ's household, to not be allowed to join with your other brothers and sisters in Christ when they assemble as God's church, that is to be delivered over into the world out there where Satan reigns. It's effectively to say, your sin is so serious, you have no place gathering with us. Go out into the world where Satan is. That's appropriate. That's a strong thing to say. Especially because the privilege of assembling together as God's people, maybe we take it a little too lightly, but the privilege of what we're doing now, that's a big deal to Paul. And therefore, to prohibit this fellow from doing it, that's an extreme punishment. And the Apostle Paul realises that. That's why he now goes on to give three reasons for doing it. Three reasons why such an extreme solution is warranted. Reason one, it's so that the person in question might be saved. Verse five, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. The very first reason Paul gives for putting this man out of their fellowship is so that he might be saved. In other words, it's hoped that through such a severe punishment, the bloke might be shocked back to his senses, stop his sin and return to Jesus. And it's good to pause and notice that. So as to understand that this sort of action is not an end in itself. The end goal here is not simply to expel the man so that the Corinthians can feel good about themselves because they've done something. The end goal is for her man to return to Jesus. The primary motive is one of love, that the fellow be saved. It's just such an extreme case that it requires extreme action. I mean, down in verse 9, Paul mentions a previous letter that he's already written. That suggests that this situation has been festering away for quite a while. And so this chapter represents a drastic, last resort, virtually unprecedented action within the New Testament, taken in response to an ongoing sin that even the non-Christian world would not tolerate. This is not an act of discipline to rush towards. Certainly certainly not with self-righteous bravado. I've I've been in ministry over 33 years now. I've been involved in taking this action twice. Both times, there are a lot of tears amongst the leadership team having to do this. And there was a lot of soul searching. Whether it's the best thing for that person. Paul goes on. 
hope I can. There's a second reason for taking this drastic action. It's not only so that the fellow himself might be saved, it's also an action, a matter of the Colossians being as they really are as God's people. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now, all this mention of yeast and dough and the Passover lamb, Paul is, tap, is tapping into the Old Testament event of the Exodus when God sent all those plagues against Egypt to rescue his people from slavery. And how, remember in the lead up to that last big plague of the Passover, the Israelites were told to get rid of all the yeast from their houses so as to symbolise that they were so eager to get away from Egypt. They were so eager to be God's rescued people. They were so keen to get away that they wouldn't even have time for the bread to rise. So why need the yeast? Paul is saying here that putting this guy out of their fellowship is the equivalent of an Israelite putting yeast out of their house at the time of the Passover. Do it to show how eager you are to be God's people. Do it to show that you want to distance yourself from sin. Do it to show who you are. Because Christ, their Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, he says in verse 7. You have become God's rescued people through Jesus. So remove this ugly stain and be as you really are. That's why in verses 9, 10, and 11, he broadens the whole discussion out and now starts talking about not associating with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but who is greedy or an idolater or slanderer or drunkard. And by that, Paul is not suggesting that we only hang out with people who are perfect. That would be a very small group. None of us are perfect. We are all guilty of at least some of the things that he's just listed there. At the very least in our thought world. What Paul is getting at here is that when someone says that they're a follower of Jesus and yet they willfully, openly, repeatedly just keep on sinning as if there's nothing wrong with it, well, like the fellow in this awful case of immorality, don't associate with someone like that. Because as followers of Jesus, we aren't casual about sin in our lives. Sin is a thing. And yes, we've been wonderfully forgiven through Jesus' death on the cross. But that does not mean we are flippant about it. In particular, some of the things that Paul lists there, greed, drunkenness. That's why ministries like Overcomers Outreach, which is meeting this week, they're wonderful places to help one another because we don't laugh off sin. We don't laugh off signs of any possible addiction. It troubles us when we fail and we seek support for it because we take sin seriously. That's who we are now. Which leads to reason number three for expelling this bloke caught up in this particular nasty case because part of being who we are is realising that we will have a role in judging the world. Chapter 5, verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Now, notice the difference here. Last week it was all about judge nothing because they were judging with the wrong criteria. 
Here, though, in the case of sin, the role of judgment is quite appropriate. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Now, first things first. Don't be put off by the chapter break. Uh, Chapter breaks were put in uh, hundreds of years after the original text. They're not part of the original text. It's misleading in this case because it gives you the impression that Paul is changing topic when he's not. If you scan down to the end of chapter 6, you'll see that he is not finished on the topic of sexual immorality at all. So he's not changing topic. Paul is simply moving deeper into his third reason for uh, for disciplining this particularly immoral bloke. The reason being that, of course, you should be disciplining him because as saints of God, you will one day be involved in no less than judging the world. Not that we judge the world now, okay? Chapter 5, verse 12 makes it very clear that it is not our place to be pointing the finger and moralising and judging the world now. But one day we will. Chapter 6, verse 2. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you judge the world, are you not competent to judge even trivial cases? Don't you know that we'll judge angels? Okay, these are intriguing verses um, because the New Testament usually emphasises Jesus as as the coming judge of the world. We're being told here, though, that somehow... Somehow we, his people, are going to be involved in that. Frustratingly, Paul does not elaborate on how. Small group this week. Great great place to talk about that if you really want to. Here in the passage, he simply wants to make the point that we will be involved in it. And the punchline for the Corinthians is that if you have a future role as judges, why on earth are you not now judging that especially immoral Blake within your own church? Paul goes on in chapter 6 to talk about how they're even taking each other to court, which makes the whole thing worse. That here they are, a group of people who will play a part in judging the world and that they refuse to do it amongst themselves or even over relatively small things. Imagine a maths teacher spending all their day teaching maths but coming home and refusing to help their children with their maths homework. Imagine the saints of God who will one day have a role in judging the world, yet they cannot be bothered judging even small things in their own church family. The very fact that you have lawsuits, verse 7, among you means you're completely defeated already. Why not be rather wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Now, these verses are sometimes lifted out of context and used as a blanket statement to say you must never take a Christian to court. That is not their intention, okay? The context is the massive irony of the Corinthians being saints who will judge the world, yet they refuse to exercise that role within their own church, and instead they just overlook sin and act badly towards each other. Both in trivial cases, but especially so in the case of the fellow who's sleeping with his father's wife. So is there ever a case for taking another Christian to court? I would have thought so. Put it on the list for small group this week. For now, don't miss the bigger issue that the passage is about. It's the issue of taking sin seriously. 
And for the Corinthians to especially take seriously an extreme case of it, so bad that Paul is saying you need to put him out, in this case, you actually need to put him out of your fellowship, first and foremost to save the bloke. Secondly, as a reflection of who you are now as followers of Jesus who put away sin. And thirdly, speaking of who we are, we are God's church who have a future role to play in judgment. So don't be afraid to make a judgment call now, especially in the case of that bloke sleeping with his father's wife. Roll them all up. Paul is saying, we take sin seriously. And we take sin seriously together. Because that's the really distinctive thing about this passage. It's the strong group ownership that runs through it. Because this passage, is, it's not about you or I dealing with our own individual private sin on our own in private. That has a place. But this passage is about a church family who's in life together. This is a, this is a church family where people care for and love one another enough to say and do even possibly very hard things so as to help each other live out who we are. We're followers of Jesus who distance ourselves from sin and we help each other to do that. And that does not mean being a church where it's now open season to police every other person's behaviour by getting in their face, especially if we hardly know them and we have no idea what they're dealing with in their life. Because putting aside this extreme, quite unparalleled case in the New Testament for one minute, helping each other with sin is most effectively done when it's with someone we know well, in a humble, gentle, and usually very nervous conversation. And if a Christian brother or sister who you do know well, if they ever do humbly, gently, and possibly very nervously raise a matter with you, give thanks for having a brother or sister in Christ who wants to love you well. A colleague of mine once told me about a time when he was thinking of buying a holiday house. And so he asked around for advice from his uh, Christian friends. Ian said he got heaps of good advice about when to buy, what to buy, where to buy. But he woke up one night and he realised that of all the people he'd spoken with, not one Christian friend had asked him if he might just be being greedy. And don't mishear that. He was not suggesting that owning a holiday house was necessarily greedy, but he was reflecting on the fact that Maybe someone should have at least asked the question. Because we're God's people. We take sin seriously. And with great humility and great love, we help each other when it's needed. And if that makes us uncomfortable, it could mean we either don't understand how serious sin really is, well, we don't understand who a church really is. 
Father God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for lovingly reminding us of the seriousness of sin and who we are and what you have called us into as your church family. Father, thank you that you give us each other. And we pray that we would be good at humbly loving one another well.